If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about retail reinvention. And to help me discuss this topic is Steve Dennis, president and founder of Sageberry Consulting, keynote speaker, and a regular contributor to Forbes. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to focus on retail in the first place? Sure. Well, I've been at this a long time. I was doing a few other things very early in my career, but really for over about 25 years, I've been pretty much exclusively focused on retail. I spent about 12 years at Sears in a number of different leadership roles on the operating and general management side, on the marketing side, finance strategy and innovation. And then I joined the Neiman Marcus Group as the chief strategy officer, where primary focus was on innovation, but I also started to get into multi-channel marketing, what we would call omni-channel, customer insight, loyalty, and all that kind of stuff. And then I went out on my own a few years ago as a consultant, really wanting to focus on how retailers and related brands can drive or accelerate their growth strategy and drive more innovation. And then I just kind of wandered into the writing and the speaking side of it over the last few years, and it's been really nice and that's gains attraction and started to grow. Well, I have been fortunate enough to have you share a copy of one of your keynote speeches with me, which I find really interesting, very compelling. And what we oftentimes see from people who are speakers is either no slides or like a whole bunch of junk on the slides, but your slides are awesome. They're really lively and a lot of really rich information. So let me start off with one of the questions that may lead you into those retail slides and we can kind of take it from there. Tell us a little bit about why companies should care about the reinvention of retail. Isn't Amazon just going to take us all over? And before we know it, it'll be just like, by and large, from the movie Wally. <laughs> well, well, a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, which is perhaps the most prosaic, is companies have a responsibility to their shareholders to do what they can to maximize shareholder value. So if, if they have threats and uh, if they don't keep pace or find ways even to hopefully get ahead of things, then they're not doing their jobs. But I guess the more interesting side of that is retail is clearly changing at a very rapid rate. There's very few categories that aren't being disrupted in some way, shape, or form. Amazon's part of that, which we can talk about in a second. But some of it is just some more broader trends. And so if you're not changing in most cases, you're just risking falling further and further behind and potentially becoming completely irrelevant. So I just think any retailer that I can think of, certainly to varying degrees, just has to really dial up their game if they haven't already. When you say retailers changing at a rapid rate, how is that different from the pace of change previously? 
I guess sort of an obvious point is that first and foremost, the invention of the internet followed by internet shopping really changed so many things. One of the things I talk about in my keynote is what I call the end of scarcity. And if you think back, now in some cases only 10 years ago, but certainly you go back a little bit further and so much of retail was based upon scarcity. What I mean by that is, as an example, 15 or 20 years ago as a consumer, you were limited to, from a shopping standpoint, you were limited to whatever retailers happened to be in your particular town you were willing to drive to. You were limited by whatever they happened to carry and hope that they had it in your size. You could only shop whatever hours they happened to be open and all sorts of things, the way you got information about what a good price was and the product. I mean, all of that was very, very limited. And the internet and the advent of online shopping and various other internet-based services has just completely changed that equation. And so you really, as a retailer, can't get away with being good enough anymore. And so that just really flipped the equation and has focused a lot of or has forced a lot of retailers to either change, or in many cases, it's forced a bunch of retailers to go out of business. So, and, you know, I think particularly, I guess the next part of that was the widespread adoption of, of smartphone technology, which the having customers having to go online and do their shopping, they're basically online all the time. And so, you know, that really picked up really just over the last five or six years. And then you got, you know, advent of these venture capital funded models, the growth of Amazon, et cetera. So I mean, there's just been so many forces that have really radically shifted the way retail operates just in the last few years, really. It sounds like a very complex equation compared to how they might have done business in the 1950s. Well, it isn't. I mean, I sometimes say that retail, at a certain level, you know, retail is a very simple business. You buy stuff and you try to sell it at a price that allows you to recover your costs and then make a profit. I mean, the fundamental essence of that hasn't changed, but certainly the way that many retailers go to market and the way many consumers go through their shopping journey now is profoundly different. So essentially, the math is the same. It might still revolve around unit economics. It might still revolve around CAC to CLV ratios. But the bar is higher in terms of attracting people in or in terms of scarcity. How? I guess, let me just ask then, how has the bar gotten higher? Well, you know, it's shifts in a lot of ways. I mean, one thing that's really an issue, you know, particularly as you start to talk about cost of customer acquisition and customer lifetime value is before internet shopping, most of marketing was really pretty straightforward. You know, you're doing, depending on what kind of business you were, you know, you're doing TV, you're doing radio, you're doing magazines, billboards, those sort of things. It was very mass, one size fits all. Certainly had some exceptions with catalog marketers that were doing things a little bit differently. But for the most part, you didn't really have a good understanding of what your marketing ROI was. Down to you know, any real level of detail. And the way you thought about customer acquisition was pretty broad for the most part, unless you're really doing a lot of direct marketing. And now the game has shifted so radically to digital. On the one hand, you can typically measure things much better than you could a few years ago. On the other hand, you have what I sometimes refer to as toll booth marketing, which is in order to reach some of those customers, you've got to pay the toll booth operators, which is you know, Facebook, Google, increasingly Instagram. And they are very good at raising the toll rates to get to, you know, cut to the retailers to allow them to get through to the most valuable customers. So the challenge really is that in many cases, the folks that understand the high lifetime value customers are the toll booth operators, and they have an ability to really price in a very precise way. And that's just changed the game in terms of either finding ways to acquire customers in ways that you don't have to pay Google or Facebook or find a category in a different way. So you're not in kind of this 
race to the bottom in terms of keywords and, and so forth. So, and then, you know, there's just another, a lot of other different dynamics. Physical retail is more of a fixed cost business. Direct to consumers is a variable cost business. So there's some pretty, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that, but there's some pretty profound differences in just retailers overall economics as more business goes online. I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the toll booth operators and the high value customers being kind of gated by these operators. I would even throw Amazon into your list because of the Amazon sure. marketing program now in order to appear on the marketplace. Right. You've got to pay to get better placement. And one of the interesting things that came out a couple weeks ago on the podcast with Mark Mahaney from RBC was that they had estimated that about 25% of Amazon's customer base or about 100 million customers were really high value customers. And these were largely the prime customers. The recency and frequency, the things that drive a CLV model were indeed much higher with these customers. So the ability to get to high quality customers is starting to become, I think, a little more obvious once people lift the cover and say, oh, wow, who is it that we're acquiring? We can't just take, and forgive me for calling Blue Apron on the carpet here, but I'm going to call it the Blue Apron strategy of acquire like crazy, or maybe even the AOL strategy of acquire like crazy until I can't acquire anymore or until my costs of acquisition are just so sky high, I can't maintain it. Sure. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. So I think there's a couple things to unpack there. First, there's a tendency, I think, on the part of a lot of folks to think of Amazon as one thing, as primarily an online retailer. And going back to your earlier question, I mean, Amazon as a retailer is certainly very important, but they are 5% of the market. And five years from now, they'll be under 10% of the market. So this notion that somehow Amazon is eating the world is is just fundamentally wrong. Now, as I always say, you know, the future of retail and the future of most things is not evenly distributed. So, I mean, Amazon is absolutely, they've destroyed the book and CD market, you know, anything that can be digitally downloaded. And they've done very little in some other categories or they're very unprofitable in some other categories. So you really have to look at the Amazon effect, I think, at a more nuanced level. But the other thing is Amazon is, as you point out, I mean, they have a marketing business. They have the AWS business. They have a lot of different components. And so, and, you know, even when you talk about retail, there's some pretty profound differences between the marketplace and what they do as a direct merchant. So anyway, you have to kind of get into that. But I mean, it's definitely an issue that when people thought about Amazon eating the world, or they think about these digitally native vertical brands disrupting major categories, one of the things to keep in mind, and Blue Apron is a great example of that, Wayfair today is a great example of that. I would say probably at least half of the businesses that get a lot of press are, you know, very, very unprofitable and in many cases are acquiring customers at significantly below a net customer lifetime value. So the question there will be to what degree can they fine-tune their model? You know, because the idea of the more you grow, the more you lose is not really a great business strategy. Uh, but as long as investors, I mean, the thing that's so different now, I was at, I'll take you a quote story. I was at a conference where this guy presented after one of the CEOs of the digitally native vertical brand presented. And that CEO talked about how amazing their NPS scores were and how fast they were growing and this valuation of over a billion dollars. And then this guy came up and described a hotel he was going to build that had incredible features and benefits. It's going to be like the most spectacular hotel in New York that you ever heard of. And then he said, the great thing is not only is it going to be the best hotel, but my prices are going to be 10% lower than every other great hotel in New York. And then he said, how many of you would like to stay in this hotel? Everybody raised their hand. He said, how many would like to invest in this hotel? Nobody raised their hands. And then he said, well, how is what I just 
described any different than the last what the last presenter told you they were going to do and kind of brought the room down but and there's some false parallels there but when I was at Sears if it was acceptable to and you know that's a complex issue <laughs> describing Sears but I could say if it were available to us that we could invest more money in sales associates and products and ambiance and marketing and our investors would be okay with a negative 10% EBITDA it would be a way better store <laughs> for sure and our growth trajectory would change radically but that was not available to us but that's available to most of these digitally native vertical brands and then the question is at what point will they ever is it just an exercise in futility and they won't be able to raise enough capital to keep the thing going as has happened to some notable flameouts you know or will they be able to adjust but it's, but it's a very big problem and it's very disruptive to a lot of the traditional players that are trying to keep up when the competition is spending an economic amount of money on marketing and often operating at gross margins that are five or ten points below the average. Right. And it gets back to what you said at the very beginning about the responsibility to maximize shareholder value. You know, when you have Wall Street or the board coming down saying, show me the money, show me the money today, it's hard to have a, or to pivot to a long-term strategy like LTV versus the digitally native brands that maybe aren't public or don't have that pressure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at some point, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and I certainly have been surprised in some cases how some brands have been able to fund their growth. It's been interesting that not that it's retail, but it was Uber and Lyft have gotten profitable. Public markets have taken a look at their numbers. You know, a lot of investors have failed, right? And, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see as more of these um, designated vertical brands come public and people start to see their numbers. At what point are they able to keep sustaining their growth? But in any event, for now, it remains, even though there are you know, some public back and some notable failures and some, you know, that are like Wayfair that are in Blue Apron and so forth that are very much on the radar screen now and probably don't have much latitude for more than another quarter or two of bad performance. For the most part, there's still plenty of money behind some of these growth companies. So I think, you know, as a practical matter, most retailers have to plan that that world's not going to change um, that much, at least another couple of years. Well, let's talk about one of the interesting ways I've seen some of these companies grow. So I'll take Bonobos, for example. They started out as digitally native, and then they used the high-value customer density to understand where to open the physical store on top of the reinvention right. of the physical store. How do you see physical stores changing? Well, I hate to give you the depend answer, but I mean, Bonobos and a lot of these brands that are opening their own stores, I mean, I, I often say everything is old, old is new again. That was very much the model that catalog retailers followed 20 or 30 years ago. Williams-Sonoma, Sir Latab, Eddie Bauer, etc. all opened stores, number one, because they realized that they were missing growth potential by not doing it. They started to understand, particularly in the case of apparel, that returns would be much lower because returns in apparel in particular are really costly. And third, often, um, once you get to a certain scale, the cost of customer acquisition is actually lower. So I think it was totally predictable that most of these companies, even though, uh, and Andy Dunn in particular, whom I know, personally told me six or seven years ago that they would never open stores. And so I checked yesterday because I quoted that in my speech <laughs> that they have 62 stores now. So never is a, a long time. But anyway, I mean, but I don't think you have to be a genius to know that. You just have to understand the dynamics of how retail is working. So I think it underscores, particularly for certain categories, which still have a high degree of consumers wanting to touch and feel the product and sizing is important and things like that. Uh, and they want to be involved in shopping as a social event and so forth. I think you're going to continue to see plenty of growth on the part of these brands with their own physical stores. And I think in general, the big shifts in physical stores are the ones that I think are the, the shifts that are important 
is to really understand that really in every category I've looked at, it's just more pronounced than some, that online drives physical and physical drives online. And you really have to think about your brand as one experience that plays out in multiple channels. And that just forces you to really think about what is the role of digital media and the digital presence? What's the role of the store? And how do you harmonize those things in a way that really works well for the customer, but ultimately has to work well for your own economic? And so we're seeing it playing out in different ways. We're seeing some concepts like beta that are not selling anything that basically, as Doug Stevens, another retail consultant, talks about is this idea of stores as media where the physical space is really being used much more for marketing, not for selling stuff, which really starts to make us think about different sort of metrics. Brands like Bonobos and Warner B. Parker, where it's much more of an obvious blend of, you know, where they might have 50-50 or 40-60 between online and physical. And then traditional brands like Best Buy, Walmart, Target that have all really started to invest in stores again, while at the same time improving their digital presence. But I think more importantly, starting to understand better how stores and digital need to work in concert. So I think it will really vary by category for sure. And I think generally it will result in, at least among the players that have traditionally had big boxes, it will certainly result in smaller stores over time and in smaller store counts. But um, you, know, you just have to really understand the customer's needs and the economics of delivering on them. How much do you think that store reinvention is being driven by the desire to really deeply understand the customer? So if I have a little bit of information on you in the digital space, and then you come into the store and I get your credit card information and I start to kind of maybe get more and more and more information about who you are as a customer. Is that what's really driving all of this? Well, I think for the retailers that are winning, for the most part, absolutely. I think, and it's starting to change, I think, just really in the last year or so. I think there was a lot of knee-jerk reaction on the part of traditional retailers anyway, the ones that were more were overwhelmingly brick and mortar. They were changing their stores more to reduce costs, you know, the way they saw their stores as liabilities and they're really trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I become more efficient? I think, so So some of the examples I mentioned, I think the smarter retailers, so to speak, I hate some people with us, but I mean, I think the retailers that were really paying attention to the different sorts of customer journeys and how they were shifting and were using more, not necessarily formally human-centered design process, but really trying to understand more the emotional side of what customers are seeking to do and applying that to their stores, they were much better informed about the role of digital and the role of stores in how they want that experience to look going forward. I know I worked a little bit with Nike a few years ago on some of their reinvention of their stores in a very limited way, but it's very clear that they were using a lot of customer data, but mostly they were using human-centered design principles. And then, you know, that was helping them understand the customer data they needed to gather to not only shift their stores, but reinvent their loyalty program and a bunch of other things. And I suspect that that's what's going on with some of these better better companies or companies that are performing better. That's a better way to say it. Okay. I wonder if those two are slightly different focuses for the ultimate goal of you know, bringing higher value customers in. So if I use human-centered design and I'm using all my customer data, on one hand, I might have the odds of 
really pleasing a lot of customers, but it's not sliced by the precision of the high value customer base and what that particular customer base wants, or maybe even the step below that, the people who have the highest propensity to become the the high value customer base. Do you think that some of these store remodels are maybe a little bit misguided in terms of focusing on the customer experience as an aggregate, or are they coming up with the right thing and then eventually getting closer to to high-value customers? Well, from what I've seen, it's a pretty mixed bag. I mean, I think first of all, and I said this on stage in my last keynote, I would really love for the industry to get a working definition of what we mean when we say customer experience, because I see a lot of stores adding things that are quote-unquote experiential. And in many cases, I think they're gimmicky. And it is hard, I think, to your point to understand, okay, well, that may get you more posts on Instagram, or that may get you a nice write-up in design magazine. But is that really pointed toward acquiring and growing and retaining and get creating raving fans or whatever you want to call them for your brand that really drives customer value. So I think in many cases, there is sort of this, you know, get me some experience <laughs> and, uh, and get me some more posts on Instagram. And it's not rooted in a good understanding of customer equity or customer value analysis. I do think there's two different things. I would say I'm more expert in uh, marketing optimization than I am human-centered design. But I think there's two, a little bit two different things. I think human-centered design can be very informative from a very big picture strategy perspective. And I think you have to certainly have in mind, or it seems to me like it works better if you have in mind, who are we redesigning the experience for? You don't have a very clear understanding of the customers that are important to your business today and the customers you want to retain and the customers you want to acquire. But that could be done at a fairly macro level so that you're not designing it for you know, customers that aren't a good fit for your brand or have no potential to be profitable. I think when you start to talk about more precision marketing or marketing optimization, then absolutely, you can be much more scientific about ideally down to the individual, but certainly kind of micro-segmentation. And then if you've got a good understanding of that, that certainly can inform not only specific marketing tactics, but I think can be battled into your store experience and some of the tactical things you do. So I think it's a little bit of a two different lenses, but they should ultimately be pretty tightly aligned over time. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that's certainly, I think, where the organizations are starting to go slowly, <laughs> gradually. Let's talk a little. Yeah, but, you, you know, I guess I just one other thing. I, was gonna, I mean, I think I still think that most retailers are a bit in the dark ages on the way they approach most of these issues. And I think that some of it, which is, I think, one of the reasons why these outsiders, so to speak, these digital native vertical brands in particular, have been able to do so well is that they just come at the consumer and the marketing experience in a really different way. And I think it's very hard for legacy retailers, traditional retailers, whatever you want to call them, to really shift their thinking because it's really a different, there's so many aspects that are so different that it's not easy. I think I've certainly dealt with some companies where you know they don't even really, they don't fundamentally get what's going on in some ways. They're approaching it in a very traditional incremental sort of way. And so I think it's not just a matter of, um, I certainly like to think that if somebody hears my keynote or when my book comes out, reads it like it'll be oh okay i'm going to know exactly what to do but and you know, i certainly hope it's helpful but i also think that some of the issues in these retailers are so profound of talent level and culture level that just having a different way to look at it or hiring a consultant or reading a book or whatever is only going to get you so far 
That makes sense. I like to think about that as product-centric versus customer-centric thinking, but customer-centric yeah. in the way that the digital brands I've noticed have infected their brands with so much personality, so much heart that yeah. you feel like you're signing up to be a member of their tribe. But the product-centric right. brands are so much more like, okay, I need a shirt, I need a, I need an item, and it's not a personalized or I don't mean personalized but it's, it's not a heartfelt experience. Can traditional retailers create that kind of heartfelt experience in an authentic way? Well, I would hope so. First of all, I completely agree with you. I think retail really suffers and has suffered from not only the product-centric thinking, but the channel-centric thinking and having been organized by stores versus e-commerce. I've started to use the term, and it's a little bit to be provocative and maybe proprietary, of being human-centric as opposed to customer-centric, because partially because I don't think customer-centricity has worked. I mean, just about every company I've ever encountered talks about being customer-centric, customers first, customers at the heart of everything we do, you know, yada, yada, yada. But when you look at it, to your point, it hasn't happened for the most part. I think when we start to talk about being human-centric, the reason why I like that is, number one, I think from a customer point of view, it starts to inject what you're talking about, I think, which is where's the heart? Where's the emotion? Where is there something about the story? And I often say, it's not my original idea, but I often say people buy the story before they buy the product. And my friend Seth Godin talks about people like us buy things like this. There is this aspect of affiliation and tribalism and so forth or how, it, how a product makes us feel, what it says about us, that is important in so many categories. And I think you have to get to that, whether you do it through you know, anthropological studies or human-centered design or whatever, but it is really dealing much more with that emotional connection. The other part of human-centric is I think you also start to think about you bring your sales associates into the equation. I think we talk about customer-centric. We often say, well, you know, the associates in the process get left behind. And so I think when we think about who are all the humans that are involved in this decision, because my spouse may not be the customer, but my spouse is this human who's important in my life, may be also important to the decision as the associates will be, as are the social networks that I'm involved in. And then I think human-centric also brings in, you know, what are we doing for the planet? Not to get super PC about it, but as humans, the things we buy, how we source products and so forth affects all of us. And so I think this human dimension is, you know, is without, I mean, it's a higher level ideal, but I think it's a good starting point and we can start to drill down more into the customer-centric behavior. But and no, it's a real issue. And it's very far from the heart of most traditional retailers' ways of thinking. So it's a big leap for them, I think, to get there. And you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of these other brands that have done well, it's I don't know in all cases how they've done it, but it's absolutely in their DNA. It's more than just a mission statement for most of them. Yeah. And I think maybe if they understood it as the emotional loyalty is a stronger bond than a transactional loyalty, maybe they would be more inclined to shift over into that vein. But I also think it's hard for them because they've got such a broad mix of customers and they haven't grown up as a specific tribe focused, then it's hard for them to figure out, well, what do they stand for without alienating another group? Whereas the smaller companies have the luxury of the focus. Yeah, I mean, the smaller companies have many huge advantages. I've said for a while, and I think loyalty is another term that people throw around. I think to me, the only loyalty that matters is the emotional loyalty. Behavioral loyalty isn't often, isn't, it points to something, but it's 
that's often not the case. So that doesn't turn out to be loyal or, you know, we're really talking about frequency or spend, not loyalty. But regardless of that, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, so many traditional companies have, you know, not only in you know, having worked for two that are, and a consultant to a couple that are, have very strong cultures and been around for a long time. It's really tough to turn that battleship, no matter how good the leader might be and no matter how much money he or she throws at it. So, I don't, you know, it's easy to say, you know, just do all these things, but I think it's the cultural shifts that are huge. In many cases, as I said earlier, just even really getting what people are talking about, what that really looks like. It's almost like people are speaking a totally different language. You know, you think you're communicating, but one person's speaking Mandarin and the other person's speaking Farsi or something, you know. And in many cases, they don't have the tools they need and they're beholden to, well, they don't have to be necessarily, but, you know, I don't think it's having the two companies where I was chief strategy officer were public companies and the demands of the public market for short-term performance and the sort of metrics they look at the street looks at are helpful in some respects, but oftentimes can be very constraining. So there's a lot of things that would have to change, I think, a sort of bigger picture in the ecosystem, or whatever you want to call it, in addition to just the hard work of, of changing a many decades old, in some cases, culture. You know, even if you have the technology, even if you have the money to invest. I think the other thing, which is really sad, and I think it, it just speaks to how dangerous it is to wait. I mean, I, I talk a lot of times about it. most of the retailers that I see in trouble today basically watched the last 20 years happen to them. It wasn't, I would say that when I was at Sears, it wasn't as if we didn't know what was going on. Certainly didn't have perfect information, but it was not news to us that we were losing market share to these various competitors you know, back in the 90s. That wasn't something that we weren't aware of, but for various reasons, which is you know, a whole other podcast or a book unto <laughs> itself, you know, we didn't do anything. So the difference between knowing and doing is often huge. But now for many of these retailers, they've gotten themselves so much into, you know, back into a corner and their performance isn't such that they have the cash flow to invest. And to I think point you made earlier, in many cases, even if you had the cash and even if you had this brilliant long-term plan, it's unlikely that Wall Street would trust the management team enough or just, you know, for their own short-term interest would go along with what might need to be done. So it's very, very hard, I think, once companies get boxed in to make the changes they need to make. So it's, it's sad to see. I think it's just unfortunate. It's a harsh reality for many of these companies. I agree. And let's just assume that maybe there are a couple retailers out there who are capable of change. If they were going to change, what should a traditional retailer focus on to reinvent themselves? And if you can prioritize that in an order, that would be great. And if it's relevant, what would a digital retailer focus on? Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is I don't really believe fundamentally there's any difference between a physical and digital retailer. I mean, there's almost no retailers of any size that are purely digital anymore. I guess the only thing I would say as a digital retailer is, is there actually a future for you as a digital only retailer? What is your harmonized strategy potentially look like? But certainly really all of the, the retailers that were growing quickly that were digital five years ago, I mean, they're all opening stores and in some cases, dozens or hundreds of stores. So I think that distinction that you know, really won't exist. 
any of your I mean, Amazon even is going to do close to $20 billion in brick and mortar stores this year. So <laughs> bigger than, I don't know, 99% of the retailers. So, but I mean, I think you have to, I mean, it's always good, I think, to a point that you brought up earlier. You need to have sent some sense of, you know, who are you doing this for? Who are the customers that count? They count either because they're very valuable to you today, or you think you have great potential for them to grow with you, or they're going to be important to you in the future and you need to acquire them. So you have to, have, I think, some sense at a strategic level. Obviously, you need to have this down at the tactical marketing level, but at a strategic level, who are the customers that matter and have some sort of workable segmentation that's based upon value and behavior and so forth. And then you really need to dissect those customer journeys. And this is where it gets a little wild and crazy, right? I mean, you can have, say, four or five uh, strategic segments of your customers, but, you know, particularly if you're selling a lot of different products, the same type of customer might behave very differently if they're buying a coffee pot from you versus redecorating their home, right? But, you know, you have to have some sense of those different customer journeys and where is their leverage to, when I talk about a harmonized retail experience, I talk about where are there opportunities in the customer journey to really root out the so-called discordant notes and the landing, you know, the pain points, the friction points in the journey that really matter. And then conversely, where do you have those opportunities to really be remarkable in terms of amplifying the experience? So, you know, that could be unbelievable product, unbelievable service, just a magical shopping environment. You know, there's a number of different ways that could play out depending upon what segment so I think starting with some sense of long-term customer value, dissecting those customer journeys and figuring out where your leverage is. And then I think it's, you know, fundamentally being more agile and being willing to experiment because I think when I was growing up, most of my time in, in retail, when we were doing big strategic things, we would do a lot of study, might have consultants involved, and then there'd be sort of this ta-da moment where we'd reveal our new marketing strategy or our new concept or what have you, and it'd be sort of this big bang of innovation. And I think over the last few years, and I think both you know Amazon and some of these other disruptive brands, you know, they've got such a culture of experimentation where they're just constantly testing things, and it's this fail-fast kind of mantra. And that's another barrier, I think, to a lot of ways that traditional retailers operate that don't have that culture of experimentation and testing and learning. And I think you really need to be very, very agile because it's too, you know, it's too hard. Well, first of all, I think you know you need to operate on a more personalized level anyway. So there's much more of a micro focus to how much of it is important businesses today. But also, it's just too hard to predict where the customers are going. And you just need to kind of wash, rinse, and repeat really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And I also think the interesting thing about the testing aspect is that you can start it slowly and help change the culture of the company as you go and as you try to make it faster and faster. I think that a traditional retailer could be successful in generating cultural change by using testing and engaging their teams as to, you know, what's going to happen with the test? Is this going to be a good test or a bad test? What do you think is going to happen? It could be a really good tool for cultural change. Yeah, I think so. And I have seen some of that. I think, you know, where I've, where I've also seen it get hung up is you have to, I have found that most people, perhaps myself included earlier in my career, go to big companies because they're not fundamentally that risk averse. And so even if the associate, announce, you know, the, the CEO announces that she wants to start, you know, she'll put X millions of dollars and create a team or whatever to do all these tests and run pilots, you know, which we started to do some of that when I was at Neiman's. A lot of times the reaction was, well, why would I want to go work in that group? You know, I'm on a career path. What's going to happen if this doesn't work? Am I going to be able to go back into the organization? What happens if these things don't work? And so it takes time. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it shouldn't be that hard a thing to get started on. It's often a little bit hard to scale because 
because the organization is sort of watching what's really going to happen to these people. So that's where some of these upstart brands have such a huge advantage because the fundamental premise of a, of a startup, right, is you're, you're very risk-seeking and you've got investors that are much more risk-tolerant. And you know if you don't discover things and iterate quickly, you're not going to be able to keep getting funding. And so there are some real advantages um, on the innovation side. But absolutely, there are plenty of things that legacy retailers can do on being more radical. They can certainly do more things to be to do more personalization. I mean, there's a whole host of things I think that are really important to reimagining retail that are available to legacy retailers. The big question is, can they scale those those things where they're just sort of these kind of random experiments? And is there's a strength of conviction over the long term to, uh, I heard this term yesterday, prove and move, you know, like prove these things out, but then invest behind it, not just kind of get stuck in this laboratory mode, uh, which I have seen quite a few. Did you say prove and move? Yeah, prove and move. Like, I mean, one thing, question you didn't ask, but one thing I've seen with some of the innovation efforts on the part of some bigger retailers over the last couple of years is that some of them have actually done a really good job of piloting a number of things or, or prototyping or whatever you might want to call it and have a really pretty hefty portfolio of really interesting things. But they often have a hard time getting them out of that proof of concept mode, even if they're viable, because they don't really have the budget or the process to take something from you know, fairly small scale to fairly large scale. So what I think people often forget, or at least people that haven't done a lot of real innovation work, is that innovation is a process and innovation is also a big cult has to become a cultural norm. And so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty comprehensive effort to do at any scale over time. And many retailers certainly are doing a pretty good job of that. Uh, many are just trying stuff at a you know, kind of random level. But, you know, many of these retailers are going to have to get a lot, lot better at it quickly or they're going to be left in the dust. As I think we've seen a pretty good example of a couple of years ago of, of retailers that are just either gone or for all intents and purposes gone because they didn't do it. So true. Well, let's hope that they get the hang of it. They hear this podcast, they get inspired and uh, you know, maybe they can prove and move and get it dialed in. Now, if people want to reach you, Steve, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. Well, you can, if you want to follow some of my stuff, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at, at Stephen P. Dennis, that's Stephen with a V and P like Peter. And then my website is stephenpdennis.com. And then probably the easiest way to find my Forbes writing is just to Google Steve Dennis Forbes and that'll, that'll take you right to my page on Forbes. Great. I know I've enjoyed a lot of your articles on Forbes. Thank you for posting those and, and for putting your perspective out there. Are you also going to be at IRCE? I guess we call it Retail X now. They've renamed it. Yes, and actually I'm doing a keynote during Retail X. So I will be in Chicago at the end of the month, I guess, or end, end of next month. Do you know the day and time of your keynote? I believe it is something like 1140. Um, I should probably should <laughs> look that up beforehand. I believe it is June 25th at uh, around 1140. Excellent. June 25th, 1140. And we will be at that show as well. We're going to be in booth uh, 646. So hopefully we'll get a chance to connect in person there as well. But if you are going to Retail X, be sure to catch Steve's keynote. It is, I've had the lovely advantage of seeing a copy of the slides ahead of time. It is top notch. It is definitely don't don't miss it. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you there. As always, links to everything we discuss are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. I've totally enjoyed our conversation and I always feel like we're in sync on our thinking. Well, 
Maybe we're both crazy. Or maybe, we're, <laughs> maybe, we're, maybe we're onto something. The nice thing is time will tell. Right? But, no, I, I appreciate it. It's been great, great speaking with you, and I look forward to seeing you in person in Chicago and hopefully uh, a number of other listeners. Excellent. Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.